Like that chorus? Beloved, that is the Reformation. You just sang it. That is the recovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Last Sunday in October is set aside in many churches as Reformation Sunday. It's a time when uh, these churches pause to remember and celebrate the work of the Reformation. The recovery of the gospel of Jesus Christ from the encrustments of medieval Roman Catholicism. The Reformation is uh, traditionally dated from 1517 to 1648, ending with the Peace of Westphalia, 1648, which ended the Thirty Years' War in Europe. But what caused the Reformation? What was it that brought about this cataclysmic change in Western civilization the results of which are ongoing even to our day 500 years later. And by the grace of God, we'll continue to go forward until the Lord returns. What was it that caused such an event? Well, there are many causes, I suppose, and historians have their favorites. For example, some point to the growing nationalism that was sweeping through Europe. At this time, Europe did not look like it does today with these independent countries. They were city-states through much of Europe. But there was a growing sense of nationalism that, uh, that Germans were, were German and they belonged to some sort of, of racial people called Germans and, and that they were not just independent city-states kind of a growing nationalism which was in direct opposition to the idea of the Holy Roman Empire, one emperor ruling over all of Europe. So growing nationalism. Other historians point to what they call a, a rising middle class dissatisfaction with the wealth and concentration of power in the clergy. It was not uncommon at all for the local uh, clergy members to, to be from somewhere else, another, another people installed in this church in your area over you. You're, you're funneling your money into this church and it's heading back outside of your country, back to Rome. And in the meantime, the clergy were corrupt in many, many cases. So there was a growing dissatisfaction with that. Certainly the Renaissance has to play a significant role. That recovery of scholarship beginning in Italy in the, in the 14th century, maybe even 13th century, and rolling forward. The notion that the, uh, the civiliz Western civilization had something to offer, and so there was a growing return to the classics. And the way that affected the Reformation is there was a recovery of Greek and Hebrew, biblical Greek and biblical Hebrew. And so there was a, a reading of the scriptures in the original written tongue, and that produced scholarship, commentaries, so forth. So the Renaissance has something to do with it. Others point to the invention of the printing press 
Actually, it, uh, it's not the origination of the printing press, but it's the movable type printing press by Gutenberg in 1456, which allowed a document to, uh, to be printed and then another page, they could move the type around and print another page. And so books and pamphlets began to circulate in a much more uh, rapid way and at a much l uh, lower price so more people could afford them and could read. And so that meant that ideas could be quickly distributed throughout the continent. Certainly the printing press has a lot to do with the Reformation. Others see a significant catalyst in the translation of the scriptures into people's native tongue. The Bible for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, yea, a thousand years, was bound away from the people in Latin. The Latin Vulgate, Jerome's Vulgate, which is interesting because Vulgate means um, common tongue or vulgar tongue. And so the, the Bible was originally translated into the common tongue of the people, Latin. But over the years, Latin passed out of the scene and people no longer spoke Latin. And not even the clergy, in many cases, could read the Bible. And in fact, in some cases, it was literally chained to the pulpit. So there was a, a rapid movement of the Bible out into the English language, into the German tongue, into French, and so forth. And that certainly contributed to the Reformation. But I think one of my favorites, or at least the one I'm going to focus on this morning, is the recovery of biblical preaching. The recovery of biblical preaching was unquestionably one of the moving factors behind the Reformation. In fact, I've entitled the sermon this morning, Preaching the Engine of Reformation. The Engine of Reformation. It drives Reformation. Not just the Reformation of the 16th century, but indeed Reformation in any time in church history when preaching is faithfully done. Let me, uh, let me trace historically here a little bit why I think this is such an important issue. It's generally agreed, again, that uh, John Wycliffe is called the Morning Star of the Reformation. Wycliffe was born in 1329, lived to 1384. He was a scholar, Oxford, I believe. And Wycliffe, um, through his study of the scriptures in the original languages, came to the conclusion that the encrustments of medieval Roman Catholicism had obscured the gospel of Jesus Christ in many ways. And so Wycliffe, as his studies led him into this, began to write and publish and, and preach this recovered gospel. Well, he was kicked out of the university, and he began to preach out in the countryside, and he, he began to gather a following of lay people, lay preachers. And they were called Lollards, L-O-L-L-A-R-D-S, Lollards, which means mumblers. Okay, it was a derogatory term. And these mumblers, these lollards or lay preachers took Wycliffe's discoveries and began to broadcast them through preaching throughout the English countryside. And for 150 years, although they were severely persecuted, the lollards were preachers. Preachers. Wycliffe, through his writings, also significantly influenced a Czechoslovakian man by the name of John Huss. Huss was born in 1372, died in 1415. He was a university professor, 
And as he encountered both Wycliffe's writings and his own study of the scriptures in the original tongues, he came to similar conclusions. And Haas, as was true in those days, frequently you were not only a university professor, but you were a pastor of a local church. How in the world they did both, I have no idea. But Haas was that. He was the people's priest in Prague, and he would forcefully get into the pulpit and begin to preach the truth of the, of the recovered gospel of Jesus Christ. And so through Huss's preaching, the message spread through what's known as Czechoslovakia. John Huss was burned for his stand against the church. July 6, 1415, he was burned at the stake. There was another theologian, university professor, and people's pastor, born in Germany in 1483, died in 1546. Martin Luther was his name. Luther is the one who is credited with, with lighting the fuse that, that exploded the Reformation when in, on uh, October 31st, 1517, he nailed a list of disputations that he was having with the Roman Catholic Church over the, the issue of indulgences to a, a public bulletin board and attempting or intending to enter into public disputation. And through the use of the printing press, it was quickly translated into German from Latin, in which it was originally written. And it went wide and far, and it, it sort of exploded the issue all around. <clears throat> Luther's life is characterized... Um, well, you come tonight, and I'll tell you how his life was characterized. But let me just say this. <coughs> Luther was a preacher. Luther was many, many things, but he was certainly a preacher. And through very forceful, very bold preaching, his understanding of the gospel by grace alone, through faith alone, spread rapidly throughout not just Germany, but indeed all of Europe. <coughs> Time will fail me. Should I speak of Calvin, or Zwingli, or Knox, or a whole host of other reformers who were first and foremost preachers? And so in light of the powerful influence that preaching had upon the Reformation, I think it's only appropriate we celebrate it this morning by reminding ourselves again about the significance of biblical preaching. So, open your Bibles to 2 Timothy Chapter 4. 2 <clears throat> Timothy is Paul's last recorded correspondence <coughs> under divine inspiration to his faithful ministry partner, Timothy. Timothy was Paul's junior. I think Paul probably led him to the Lord, certainly discipled him. Timothy was Paul's faithful ministry companion for about 15 years. This epistle was written sometime around AD 64 as Paul sitting in a Roman dungeon awaiting execution. And so this is his last will and testament. These are the final things that he wants his protege to know before he leaves. And so it's, the themes of this letter are very, very significant. It's about how to carry on the work after he departs. The Apostle Paul, the great missionary and church-planting pastor, 
And the letter builds from its beginning all the way through to the end. And, and really the crescendo of this letter is before us in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. This is the high watermark of the letter. And in this particular section, we find three characteristics of biblical preaching so that we might be reminded of the importance of preaching. So, first characteristic to see this morning as we look at this text together is is that biblical preaching is a solemn duty. Let me read it for you. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. The theme of spiritual defection is very strong in this letter. If you just look back to chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, really 1 through 13, Paul is talking about spiritual defection. He says, verse 1, realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. And then he goes on to outline exactly what those difficult times will be and, and what will characterize them. And it's a, it's a litany of, of foul sinfulness that was true not only of the Apostle Paul's day, but is certainly true in our day as well. And so spiritual defection, Paul says, it's, it's on the horizon. Indeed, it's right here standing at the door. And for those of us in the beginning of the 21st century, this spiritual defection is all around us too. And Paul further says that the only antidote for this kind of spiritual defection is the Word of God. Verses 14 through 17, chapter 3. That's the point. He says, you, however, verse 14, Timothy, you, instead of... Instead of falling prey to all of that, you, however, continue in the things you have learned to become convinced of, knowing from whom you've learned them, so forth. And then he talks about the Scripture, verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God. This is God's antidote for the spiritual defection that is right there at the horizon in Paul's day and is very much a part of the scene of our own. And so it's, it's very... Appropriate that his next words to Timothy as he begins chapter 4. Now, of course, you know that Paul didn't write this with chapters and verses. So you would be reading this letter and he'd say that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I solemnly charge you, preach the word. Timothy, that's the only antidote. That's the only thing that you have to counteract all this spiritual defection that appears all around you. Now, his statement, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, whom the judge, the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, Paul is stacking it up here for Timothy in order to impress upon him the seriousness of the charge that he is giving to him. Twice before, the Apostle Paul has used this kind of formula to impress upon Timothy something that he must do. Over in 1 Timothy chapter 5, In verse 21, he says, There I solemnly charge you, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of His chosen angels, to maintain these principles without bias, doing nothing in a spirit of partiality. 
In the immediately preceding context, what's being talked about there is the public rebuke of elders who are sinning and refuse to repent. Paul has said elders are to be granted a great deal of of protection of their reputation and their character, having been examined first when they're installed into the office of elder, and then when a charge or an accusation comes against them, it's not to be received lightly. Their character is to be protected, but if they show themselves unfaithful, then they are to be publicly rebuked. And Timothy, you're not, you're not to show favoritism in this. This is a serious matter. So I solemnly charge you. Over in chapter 6, the same letter. In verse 13, the Apostle Paul uses a similar charge for Timothy. He says, I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. What's the commandment? The commandment is given back in verse 12, Timothy. That is that you, you make a good confession. You walk the talk. You live the Christian life regardless of the pressure upon you. And so I command you, Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God not to wilt. Do not wilt. So this, back in 2 Timothy 4, is the third time Pardon me, the third time that he charges Timothy to do something. But this particular formula rises to a new level of seriousness. It is, it is a more serious accumulation of witnesses in the presence of God in Christ, he says, than in the others. This is more important, Timothy, if you can believe it, than even the other two. charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And who, and by his appearing in his kingdom, Paul moves beyond God and he focuses on Christ Jesus and he focuses on him in really two aspects. He focuses upon him as the judge and he focuses upon him as the coming king. And he says, Timothy, this, this adds a level of significance, a level of seriousness, a level of solemnity that, you, that doesn't exist for these other charges. Jesus Christ, Timothy, who is the judge, who is the judge of the living and the dead. Now, the idea of Jesus as judge is actually very common throughout the New Testament. There are many, many places in the New Testament where Jesus himself says he's the judge and there are where other writers refer to him as the judge. And in fact, the, uh, the statement, the judge of the living and the dead, many commentators believe is actually a, had become by this time a part of a baptismal formula where, where a baptismal candidate would confess Jesus, allegiance to Jesus Christ, the judge of the living and the dead. Peter, 1 Peter 4, 5, he says... Um, they shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Over in Romans 14, 9, Paul says, To this end, or for this end, Jesus Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Peter says in Acts 10, 42, that he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Jesus himself said in John 5, 22, Not even the Father judges anyone. He has given all judgment to the Son. Jesus Christ is very much a judge. And that's the point that Paul is is pulling forward here for Timothy. He's saying, Timothy, 
It is in the presence as if you are in a courtroom before these witnesses of God and Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus in his role as judge. Now, when he says living and dead, I think that's just an all-inclusive phrase. That's just like saying everybody. He is the judge of everybody because you're either living or you are... That's right. Prove to me what you are this morning, please. Right? You're either living or you are dead. Okay, so it's an all-inclusive category. Jesus is the judge of mankind. Well, when will this judgment come? When will Jesus execute his judgments? Well, that's really hinted at here in the, in the second part of this, where it says, by his appearing in his kingdom. Judgment comes with the return of the king. When the King, the Lord Jesus Christ, returns, that's when judgment comes. Psalm 110, verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. At the ascension, the Lord Jesus Christ ascended to the right hand of God the Father, where he sits and waits until all of his enemies are put under his feet when he returns and establishes his kingdom. And as part of the establishment of his kingdom, there is judgment. Now, this word appearing, epiphania in the Greek, we get the English word epiphany from it. It is used six times by the Apostle Paul. And five of those six times refer most definitely to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. The other one, 2 Timothy 1.10, refers to the incarnation or first coming. So when Paul says here, by his appearing or his epiphany and his kingdom, he is most definitely referring to the return of the king, the Lord Jesus Christ coming in his glory to establish his kingdom. The Bible tells us when the king comes, there is judgment. There are actually four judgments referred to in the scriptures. And all four of these judgments are related to the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ in one way or another. Just quickly, to review them in your own mind, there is what's called the Bema Seat Judgment. 2 Corinthians 5.10, 1 Corinthians 3.10-15. That is a judgment upon, or an evaluation, if you like it, upon the, the, uh, the ministry and works of the believers when they will appear before the Bema Seat of Jesus Christ at the rapture of the church and have their works evaluated. The Bema Seat. When Christ returns at the end of the tribulation, there are two judgments. There is the sheep and the goat judgment referred to in Matthew 25 when he gathers the Gentile nations before him and he separates them as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goat, right? Sheep on the right, goats on the left. Sheep go into the kingdom, goats go into eternal condemnation. So there is the sheep and goat judgment of the Gentile nations at the end of the tribulation period. Then follows the judgment of the Jewish nation. For that, you can take a look at Zechariah 13, verses 8 and 9, and Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 33 to 38. Where there, the scriptures say that the, that the nation passes under the shepherd's rod and he separates out the rebellious and he slays them. And one third of the Jewish nation enters into the millennial kingdom. The final judgment 
spoken of in Revelation 20, is the great white throne judgment, which occurs at the end of the millennial kingdom when the wicked dead are raised and stand before Christ, their judge, and they are dispensed with and sent off into the lake of fire. So there are four judgments that come, and every one of them relates in some form or fashion to the appearance of the king in his coming kingdom. So why does Paul pull all this in for Timothy? Why does he, why does he spend so much time talking about Christ as judge and about his appearing in his kingdom? Because he wants Timothy to know that this is a serious matter, Timothy. Your ministry will be evaluated. You will stand before the Bema Seat of Christ, Timothy, and you will give an account for your ministry. And so there's a level of seriousness here. It's derived from the fact that there's judgment, there's evaluation, there's Christ in his, in his role as judge, looking over what you do, Timothy. So in light of all that, what is it that he is supposed to do? Verse 2. What is his solemn duty? It is to preach the word. It is as simple as that. It is to preach the word. Keruso is the verb. It comes from the noun keruks, which refers to a herald. A herald, one who, who makes public proclamation. One who, who takes the words of the king and then goes out and gathers the people together and hear ye, hear ye, thus says the king, and he reads the proclamation. So the verb keruso, or to preach, it means to proclaim publicly, audibly, a message. And what is the message that he is supposed to proclaim? Look again, verse 2. Keruso, the word, Timothy. You are to preach the word, not your own personal philosophies, not your own religious speculations, not the latest newspaper headline, not some book that is popular among the people. You are to preach the word, Timothy. After all, it's the word, verse 16, that is theonoustos, right? God breathe. It is God's word, Timothy. Spoken to mankind, it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, complete, for every good work. And therefore, Timothy, that's what you must preach. You must preach the word. You know, there are a lot of um, various ministry models available today. There are a lot of ways that people do church. And, um, I mean, I don't want to... I don't want to dwell on that too long. Blowing their candle out doesn't make ours burn any brighter. But the reality of the matter is, is that there is much that goes on out there that does not fall under this injunction of preaching the Word. What people need what they have always needed, what historically God has used to reform His church is a heavy dose of biblical preaching. It is a man on fire for God who has been with God throughout the week in the study, whose heart and mind has been saturated in the Scriptures, who then stands and in the unction of the Holy Spirit delivers a message from God to His people. Okay, Russo, preach the Word. And notice next, this solemn duty is not just to preach, but it's to preach all the time. Do you see that? 
Be ready in season and out of season, he says. All the time, stand ready, Timothy, to preach the word. Not just when you feel like it, not when it's convenient, but when it's inconvenient. And believe me, beloved, there are days when it's not convenient. There are times when the preacher doesn't feel like preaching. But it's not an option. It's not based upon how a person feels that morning when they get up. A little tired, didn't sleep well, a little distracted. Maybe their stomach's upset. I mean, none of that stuff matters. He doesn't say preach the word except when you don't feel like it, Timothy, or, you know, you're having a bad day. He says in season and out of season, Timothy, all the time. Something's either in season or it is. That's it. It's out of season. Those of you who are hunters, you know what that means, right? You know what happens when you hunt it out of season, too. All the time, Timothy, preach the word. Preach the word. By the way, it certainly can refer to whether the preacher, whether it's convenient or inconvenient for the preacher, but it actually probably goes beyond that. And I think in context here is the, uh, the in-season and out-of-season refers not so much to the preacher as to the audience. Take a look at the context again. You get down to verse 3 and 4. He's, he's going to warn him about people who are not interested in hearing preaching. That would be out-of-season preaching. And again, he doesn't say, Timothy, you, uh, you preach except when they don't want to hear and then you do something else. He says, Timothy, you preach the word whether they want to hear it or whether they don't want to hear it. Why? Because it's the only antidote there is. People are infected with a disease. The disease is called sin. And the only effective antidote for sin is the Word of God. And so whether they like the taste of the medicine or don't like the taste of the medicine, you give them the medicine. That's the point. This biblical preaching is a solemn duty. It's a solemn duty. Beyond that, secondly, biblical preaching confronts sin. Biblical preaching confronts sin. Verse 2. Paul gives what amounts to here a threefold method of preaching. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience. How am I supposed to preach? I'm supposed to preach the word, but, but how am I supposed to preach the word? Is there, is there methodology given? Well, yeah, actually there is. There's some very... Um, strict methodology, some very clear methodology that's communicated here as to how to preach the Word. First off, he says you are to reprove. You are to reprove. Now, what does it mean to reprove? Well, to reprove somebody is to point out their violation of God's holy standard. When you reprove somebody, you point out their sin. You point to their sin. The term includes the idea of convicting or convincing people of their errors or their faults. By the way, same word is used back up in verse three, uh, 16, chapter 3, right? The word of God is profitable for teaching and for, see it? Reproof, for pointing out error, for pointing out sin, for pointing out shortcomings. 
Now that will really make you popular with people when you stand up and point out all their shortcomings because everybody likes to have their faults exposed, right? Wrong. Okay, it's easy to see how biblical preaching can be out of season. Nobody likes to be told that they don't measure up. Nobody. But Paul says, Timothy, that's what you're supposed to do. You are to take the divine yardstick of the Word of God, the mirror, the perfect law of God, and you're to hold it up and shine it right in their faces, and so they see where they fall short. That's what you're supposed to do. Point out their faults. Give me an example of this. Go with me over to uh, Acts chapter 2. The word is not used here, but the methodology is. And so I think it works as an example. Acts 2, you know, is a Pentecost. There is the uh, Holy Spirit comes in an amazing way here at Pentecost, as has been foretold. <coughs> there is the speaking in other languages, verses 5 through 13. And then the crowd is gathered, and so Peter stands up to preach to them, now that there's a gathered crowd. And he quotes from Joel 2 in verse 17. You can see that. Shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my spirit upon all mankind. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall see visions, or your young men rather will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even upon my bondslaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my spirit. And they shall prophesy, and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord to come, and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now what in the world is he doing? He is reaching back into Joel 2, a prophecy of the great day of the Lord, and he is rolling it forward. And notice when he, he speaks there in verses 19 and 20, He's talking about judgment because the day of the Lord has a judgment component attached to it. And so he's saying, yes, this giving of the Spirit that you're seeing manifest in the ability to speak lang unknown languages to these people is, is the beginning of this time that Joel spoke of. But don't forget that what Joel said was the time will also be accompanied by judgment. And he continues, he said, By the way, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and you put him to death. Now that's a direct way of saying you just killed your Messiah. You have just killed your Messiah. And then he continues and he begins to talk about the resurrection. And now it couldn't possibly be David's resurrection that he's talking about. It's a, it's a prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then in verse 34, he says, By the way, it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That is reproving. That is pointing out to people that you have completely missed the boat. Completely missed the boat. You have executed your Messiah who is your only hope. 
your only hope, and you killed him. You rejected him. You mocked him. You turned him over to the Gentiles for humiliation and execution. And in the process, you have cut yourself off from God. And now all that remains for you is to be put under his feet as his own enemy. Verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. They were stunned. They've been violently pricked, it says. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what are we to do? What shall we do? We killed our Messiah. Back to 2 Timothy 4. That's biblical preaching. That's reproof. That's pointing out somebody's sin as a violation of God's law. That's holding up the holy yardstick of the Word of God to them and saying, you don't measure up. You are corrupt. You are sinful. You are cursed. You are damned. That's biblical preaching. But if that were not enough, you are to rebuke, he says. You are to rebuke. That is, you are to tell someone to stop doing what they're doing. First, you are to show them why their behavior, their attitudes, the way they think is a violation of God's law that is sin. And then you are to rebuke them. You are to, to command them to stop doing it. Give me another example of that. Let me take you uh, over to Galatians. Take you to Galatians 2 for a rebuke, huh? A biblical rebuke. <coughs> Galatians 2, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, they've come back from the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, where it has been clearly determined, in accordance with the Scriptures, that circumcision, and that is uh, that shorthand for the keeping of the law, is not a requirement of, to come to Jesus Christ. And that the Gentiles do not have to come through Jewish ritual anymore. As the Old Testament required, that has now been blown away. The veil of the temple has been ripped in two. There is now direct access into the Holy of Holies for Gentiles and Jews alike. But not through the law. So they get back to... Uh, Galatia, or, or excuse me, to uh, the church in Antioch, and they're delivering this liberating message, and the people are very excited about it. And Peter, he comes back with them, evidently, and um, he's enjoying uh, company and fellowship among the church there in Antioch, and it's a predominantly Gentile-oriented church there. And Peter's enjoying that kind of fellowship. But then there are some other some Jews that kind of come around him, and they start whispering in his ear, Peter, what are you doing? How can you possibly be having table fellowship with these Gentiles? They are impure. They are unclean. And so Peter withdraws from table fellowship. He won't, have, he won't break bread anymore with them. Verse 11, chapter 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. I love that picture, by the way. You know, here's the Apostle Paul. He says he's kind of a scrawny guy, you know, bow-legged, big hunk of nose and, and real sharp, piercing eyes and one of those uni eyebrows, you know, that comes together. That's what, that's what they say about him. You know, and he's just like a hawk or something. And he's, 
I used to see him right in Peter's face, you know, about this far apart. I posed him to his face. He said, look right at him. You know? Because he stood condemned. He stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. He feared his reputation back in Jerusalem. The rest of the Jews joined him in his hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you being a Jew live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? You hypocrite, he says. Now who's he talking to? He's talking to Peter, right? Wasn't he the one who got the keys and all that good stuff? You know, right? Pillar of the church. <laughs> I just love Paul. Just boom, right in his face. He says, you stinking hypocrite. Who do you think you are? You living like you're a Gentile and you're a Jew and you want them to live in a higher plane than you're living. How dare you refuse to eat with them, refuse to take communion with them? Who do you think you are? That's rebuking. Okay, that's rebuking. Go back to uh, 2 Timothy again. That's what we would call biblical rebuking. Then the third part of it is exhortation. He says you are to exhort. That means you're to appeal to somebody. It's the idea of urging truth upon them. It, it's, it's, it's saying obey it, believe it, do it. First, this is where you don't measure up. This is what you must stop doing. And now, do the right thing. That's exhortation. That's exhortation. I'll give you another example of that. we got time, I think. Go way back to the beginning of the Bible. Do you know that God's a preacher too? Probably already knew that, right? He said Jesus. He preached. Genesis 4. Exhortation in Genesis 4. Genesis 4, this is where Cain and Abel offer their two different sacrifices, right? And God rejects Cain and his sacrifice. And Cain gets all pouty about it and kind of down in the mouth. He's pretty angry, actually. Steaming, we'll find out, mad enough to kill. But God appears to him, verse 6, chapter 4, And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? That is, why has your face grown dark? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. Cain, sin is like a wild beast right at the threshold. It, it seeks to devour you, but you must master it. You must put it off. Do what is right. Offer the appropriate sacrifice. Of course, we know that Cain refused God's exhortation, didn't he? And as it says there, just a few verses later, Cain went out into the field with his brother and rose up against him and killed him. But that's exhortation. So that's biblical preaching. It's to reprove, it's to rebuke, and it's to exhort. Now, back to verse 2, chapter 4, 2 Timothy, and just notice... It says it has to be with great patience and instruction. That's important. 
That's important to notice that little modifier there. Biblical preaching is to be direct. Biblical preaching is to be uncompromising. But biblical preaching is not to be angry and it's not to be overbearing. It's important for a preacher to remember that the sin is against God, not against him. And so he speaks for God. And he speaks as a fellow sinner dependent upon God. And so there should be with his exhortation, with his reproof, with his rebuke, this level of gentleness, this level of patience, he says. Great patience. Do you see that? Not just a little bit of patience, but great patience and instruction. You're to show the right way. You're to teach the truth. Paul says over in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, he says, you know, it's no trouble for me to write this again for you. And that's the way, that's the way preaching needs to be. It's no trouble for me to, to tell you these things all over again. I'm not angry that I have to tell you this over and over again because you don't seem to get it because you know what? I don't get it either. I'm just like you. You know, wouldn't it be nice as a parent if uh, teaching were telling, right? You know, wouldn't our kids be smart and we only had to tell them once and they got it? Wouldn't we be smart? People only had to tell us something once. But we have to hear it over and over again, don't we? We kind of, we get messed up in the same places, fall down on the same snares. So it's with great patience and it's with instruction. And like Paul says there in Philippians, there's no trouble to tell you again. I'm happy to do it. It's for your benefit. And so, biblical preaching, it has to be confrontive, yes. Because the Word of God is confrontive. Because you know what? If you're not confronted and, and change direction, you're on your way to hell. So, you better hope somebody confronts you and says, hey, turn around. Because you're not on your way to heaven. You're on your way to hell. So, biblical preaching is definitely confrontive. But it has to be done gently. It has to be done patiently. It has to be done repetitively and with instruction. Biblical preaching confronts sin. Third, biblical preaching, and you might expect this, can be unpopular. Okay? Biblical preaching can be unpopular. I mean, it almost goes without saying now, right? Verse 3 and 4, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Paul's saying there is a, there's a time coming, beloved, I would tell you it's here, when people are not hungry for what's good for them. People want junk. They want a junk food diet. You know, they, they want fast food in their, in their physical diet. They want fast food in their spiritual diet. The time has come. They will not endure sound doctrine. Notice, by the way, that the, uh, the apostle here lays the blame at the feet of the audience, of the listeners. Do you see that? He does not blame the false teachers. Oh, they've got their own blame, for sure. But he says right here, the responsibility for people who turn away from the truth lies with them. There is a responsibility to feed yourself a wholesome spiritual diet. What you read... What you watch on TV in terms of religious programming, that's where I'm going to focus, what you listen to on the radio, you are accountable to. God holds you responsible. 
to saturate your heart, soul, and mind with the truth and not with trash. Because there is a a restless craving, he says. Verse 3, a restless craving for that which is novel. Really, he lays out here, I think, in verses 3 and 4, a somewhat predictable pattern people follow. Let's see if we can just move through it quickly. First, people no longer tolerate sound doctrine. All right, the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. That, that expression, sound doctrine, appears repetitively throughout the pastoral epistles. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. Over and over again, Paul refers to sound doctrine. Healthy teaching would be another way to translate it. People don't want it, he says. The time will come when they will no longer tolerate it. It's not appealing to them. It's not appetizing. It doesn't taste good. And so they spit it out. They turn away from it. They will not endure it any longer. The rejection of sound doctrine is at its core the rejection of God Himself. It is the rejection of God's sovereignty. It's really an assault on His sovereignty and His Word. When people will no longer submit to the truth of the Scriptures, when they turn away from it, they are turning away from the living God. They're saying, God, you no longer have the right to rule over me, to tell me what is right and what is wrong, to establish my morality, to tell me what I must believe and what I must not believe. I'll make up my own mind. Thank you very much. It should not be surprising, for that goes all the way back to Genesis 3, right? That's the root of it in the garden. Satan said, God did not say... And the woman said, well, let me figure it out for myself, right? Give me one of those apples. I'll take a good look, whatever it was. I'll take a good look at it and I'll figure it out myself, right? Whether it's good or not. She set herself up as judge over God's truth. It was an open rebellion. That's the root of it all. When people turn from sound doctrine, when they turn away from the truth, they've turned away from God. And not only do they turn away because they want their ears tickled, it says, right? They want to hear that which is pleasing to them. They're tired of being reproved and rebuked and exhorted. That's no fun. Who wants to come to church when I have to slide out under the back door at the end of the service? Right? Come on, pastor, can't you tell me something encouraging? Build me up a little. I'm not that bad. So they turn from the truth. They want their ears tickled. And second thing they do is they heap up teachers to suit their own desires. We'll find somebody who'll tell us what we want to hear. They now become the determining factor of what's appropriate to be preached and what isn't. Let's conduct a survey. That's what we'll do. We'll conduct a survey. We'll ask everybody, what would you like to hear about? And then that's what we'll tell you. It would be funny if it wasn't the fact that so much of the church today, that's the way they do ministry. They'll survey the lost and ask them what they'd like to hear about. Now you talk about foolishness. We know what they need to hear. It doesn't matter what they want to hear. They heap up these teachers, false teachers. 
One commentator said, when people want to, to worship a calf, they can always find a ministerial calf maker. Kind of like that, huh? When people want a calf, they can always find somebody who will give them one, make one for them. And that's the condition. Thirdly, they turn their ears from the truth. They reject the truth and they embrace error. Nature abhors a vacuum, including a spiritual vacuum. When people turn from and notice it's the truth, when they turn from the truth, not a truth, not some, you know, everybody's got their own truth kind of thing. There's, there's one truth, the truth, the truth of God. When they turn from the truth of God, they embrace error. They turn aside to myths, it says, made up stuff. One of my favorite expressions. Stuff that people are sucking out of their thumb, you know? They're kind of making it up as they go. That's what people are interested in now. They make up substitutes, myths, fables. Turn aside. It means to be, in a medical context, it means to be wrenched out of joint. Be like pulling your arm out of the socket. What he says is when they turn from the truth, they are pulled out of the socket, spiritually speaking. It's just down, down, down. Beloved, biblical preaching can be very unpopular. John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, spent 12 years in jail because he refused to stop preaching. His wife and children begged him to stop so that he could get out and be home with them. He spent 12 years in jail. I have a friend. His name is William Tollett. About 20 odd years ago, I guess it is now, he was pastor in a little church in Massachusetts. And they didn't like the truth. They had no appetite for the truth. And they came to him and they said, stop preaching like that. And he said, I have to preach like that. This is the word of God. And they said, if you won't stop preaching like that, then we're not going to pay you any longer. And so they withheld his paycheck. And he continued to preach. And they continued to withhold his paycheck. And then he had to go out and try to find a part-time job to support his family. Well, because they weren't paying him. They wouldn't pay him. And he continued to preach. And that went on for over a year. Until finally, he was a young man, discouraged and broken. He left the ministry and he has never returned to it to this day. They broke him. God broke that little church. They had a pastor that came along later who was a retired military vet with a pension. <laughs> yeah, you can figure it out. They tried the same shenanigans with him. And he said, I don't care if you pay me or not. I'm going nowhere. He drove the wolves out of the church. It took a long time. You know, biblical preaching is just not popular. It is not popular. I don't get out much on Sundays. I'm kind of busy. But people tell me that as they visit around other churches, that, that uh, to, for somebody to sit through a 50-minute expository sermon is, is rare nowadays. Like I said, I don't get out. I don't know. But I, what I'm hearing is there, it's 20 minutes now. And it's a, it's a talk. It's a self-help talk. It's, it's how to um, cope with life's problems. Let me tell you how to cope with life's problems. Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you deal with life's problems. 
But it doesn't matter whether it's popular. We must not abandon the preaching of the Word of God. Look again at verse 1. I solemnly charge you. I don't know about you, but I don't want to... I don't want to have to stand at the tribunal and explain why my idea was better than this one. Not a chance. In season and out of season. When it's popular, when it's unpopular. Preach the word. If enough men would do this, then who knows? Maybe we'd have another reformation, huh? Let's pray. Well, our Father, the marching orders could not be more clear. We don't need opinion polls. We don't need surveys. We don't need the latest and greatest book on the market telling us how to grow the church. What we need is faithfulness to the ancient method, the one established by you. Oh, our Father, there is much that is that we must do. We can't just stand up here and wing it and call it preaching. There's a lot of hard work involved, Lord. But our Father, if we want to know your blessing, we know that the means is obedience. And it couldn't be more clear as to what our obedience needs to be. I thank you, our Father, for this fellowship and for their appetite for the Word of God. I thank you, our Father, that there is a willingness to come and to hear the Scriptures proclaimed. And there is a desire to be confronted with the Word of God, even when it hurts. Our Father, I pray you would continue to work in our midst, draw us to yourself, shape us, mold us, conform us to the image of Christ. Sand off those rough edges, Lord. Give us ears to hear and hearts to do. Let us trust the results of it all to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Come tonight if you'd like to hear about the four horsemen of the Reformation. Ron, we've got one more good uh, Reformation-style song to sing, huh?